What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Medicine and Culture with Tin and An. I'm your host, Tin. An is not here with us today. He's busy. But this is pretty much going to be a comeback episode because uh, I've been so busy with residency. But I just want to let you guys know residency is going great. I'm learning a lot. Um, also, learning that I don't know a lot of things. It's a crazy transition from... Literally one month ago, you were like a medical student, and now you're putting in orders. You know, having patients' lives in your hands. And what's interesting was, um, you know, this they had the July effect call, and this is a uh, actually a myth that's been busted. And this is something I didn't know. I thought this was true the whole time, but you know, the July effect is essentially where people think that we're saying that there's an increase in like uh, mortality rate and hospital mistakes in the month of July because that's when all the first-year resident or the interns are starting. So, but uh, that myth has been busted. It's, that's actually not true um, because even though there are more mistakes being made because there's interns starting, there's also an increase in uh, supervision by their attendings and the seniors, which is true. I actually started with a, a medical ICU rotation and you know I had my hands were held the entire uh, four weeks pretty much um, they were making sure like other scenes were overlooking the orders we were putting in we were limited on what kind of orders we can even place um, the nurses would double check they they know that uh um, they know that interns are putting in stupid orders because uh they will look at the orders like, yeah, this is definitely an intern to put in. And the pharmacy will also double check the medicine, medication you're putting, giving patients. They will like call you or your seniors and be like, um, are you sure you want this medication at this dose? Are you sure you don't want this instead? And whenever the pharmacy suggests you some, you know, some other dose or some other frequency, you just say, yes, please. Let's, let's do that. Let's go. I like that idea. Let's go with it. Um, no questions no questions asked at least for me um at least in the beginning in the early stage of the career okay but uh yeah i started with uh, medical icu uh and i was really nervous at first because you know it's probably a really tough rotation um but uh apparently it's actually better that that you start out with medical icu first for our program at least i'm currently a first year resident uh, for family medicine and uh so the reason why it's supposed to be better is because you have more interns on the team so i think there were four of us four interns on the team it was me uh, my fellow co-interns a medical intern uh internal medicine resident and an emergency medicine resident together so there's like less workload uh i think we had like about like probably like max like maybe five or six patients for each of us the census for the ICU in July is supposed to be lower than the typical number. I think it's supposed to get peak in like November, October or something. So yeah, our census, let's say we have 15 patients divided by four. Well, let's say 16. That's like four patients each. Not That's doable. Apparently, if it's you know later in the year, maybe like November or December, it's actually, they actually increase in um, uh, inpatient load. And you only have two interns, 
working. So let's say the same amount, let's say 16 patients in the beginning, and we were doing four each. If you did in November, you had the same amount of patients, 16, it's split among you guys. So now it's going to be eight patients for each intern to manage. It's freaking wild. I can't even imagine doing eight patients in the ICU because I was struggling to just handle my workload, like four or five patients. I was coming in at, it's like waking up maybe like 4.30, 4, 4.30, and getting there like around 5 a.m. Just to like pre-round my patients. Round usually start at like 8 or like 8.30. And I, I needed all that time to pre-round my patients initially. And get all the, uh, all the notes done. It took me like two and a half, you know, maybe three hours just to do that. Like the entire time. Like maybe It got a little bit easier uh, in the third and fourth week. Um, but yeah, it's a four-week rotation by the way. But like the first week, man, I was overwhelmed. Like just learning the, the, the Epic EMR system, how to put in order, how to like put notes in, how to look up patients' information. It's overwhelming. Um, it was kind of scary, but I definitely learned a lot during the ICU rotation, um, managing uh, very sick patients. Essentially what, what I got from the rotation that I came out of was like, so pretty much you want to ask yourself like why the patient in ICU? What, what we are doing for the patient and are they ready to get downgraded from the ICU today? Uh, and why, essentially, I think 80% of the time, why the patients in the ICU come down to three things, right? They either on, uh, they either intubated, so respiratory distress, so needing, uh, so they intubated and needing uh, mechanical ventilation. So that's probably like 70% of our patients. And like another reason would be uh, if they need uh, drips, so they have IV and they need like drips or like, uh, like antibiotics or if they need pressors, they need to be on the, uh, on the ICU floor. Not every drips need to, you need to put in the ICU floor, but you need a lot of drips, then you want to upgrade them to the ICU floor. Uh, so those were the two big ones I saw or like third would be but mm, they were in there for a lot of sepsis stuff. Yeah, I think the biggest one was just like being left with respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation. And two is going to be requiring like a presser on a drip. So, you know, I also, you know, kind of know about event setting stuff, learn a little bit about that. Not an expert by any means. But it's uh, very nice working with the pulmonologist, uh, ICU doctor, all super smart, very, very, they know this stuff, man. They like explain things very clearly. Uh, and I like the way they kind of like teach things and they go through, it's very methodical. So I really like that. It's a very good learning experience. Then my second rotation was, uh, it was like outpatient, like principal of family medicine. So it's kind of like, uh, that's my, I had like one week of vacation during rotation too. So that was nice. And then the one I'm currently on right now is pediatric. Yeah. So I'm currently on pediatrics, essentially for intern, our hospital doesn't have a lot of like a, doesn't have a big pediatric, uh, inpatient population. So for interns, our goal, our responsibility is, um, just taking care of the newborn. So all the babies that get delivered we get admitted to a nursery and we watch over them. We order tests, we admit them to H&P. 
um, the progress notes, put in orders for them, just like basic stuff. A lot of the time, if they do, are sick babies, we admit them to the NICU. Uh, we don't necessarily have to uh, watch them on NICU. The NICU nurses and the NICU attending will do a lot of that stuff for us. Overnight, we do have to admit the baby to the NICU and put in orders and everything. But a lot of the time, um, the NICU nurses will kind of let us know what order to put in or like what we should do. Um, they actually know a lot more about the NICU stuff than any of us. <laughs> and, you know, so that's, that's helpful. But, yeah, just like newborn stuff for now. Uh, the hours not, is, is probably 12 hours a day. Um, so, like, on, when I was in ICU, I was probably close to, like, 80 hours uh, a week mark. Um, for this pediatrics right now, it's probably, like, 70, 65, 70 hours a week on average because uh, even though you are working, like, 12-hour shifts, you don't get to leave early or anything because you got to wait for the next person to come on. But because you, you got to switch between day and night shift, so you get that kind of like extra day in between when you switch. So that's why average out to be like 65, 70 hours and stuff, 80. But it's nice. I'm, I got like two more weeks. No, I got one more week. And then I'm next, it's going to be my inpatient family medicine rotation. So I'm excited for that. I know it's going to be a lot of work too. But that's an update for you guys, if you guys have been keeping track. Uh, let's get into our podcast today. So... I made a video about this already in my YouTube channel, but we I want to talk about the doctor suicide rate. So this is a WebMD article. Doctor suicide rate is highest of any profession. So it said one doctor commits suicide in the U.S. every day. So I looked up the stats: about three hundred to four hundred suicide, physician suicide, uh, annually. So average out to be one, around one every day, which is crazy. Um, it's the highest suicide rate of any professions. So apparently, I think they like com compare it with like uh, like military personnel, and it's even higher than than uh, like soldiers and like people in the military. Um, and the doctor, the number of doctor suicide is more than twice that of the general population. Crazy. So they usually who die by suicide often have untreated or undertreated depression or other mental illnesses. Which makes sense. The, and, and, and the sad thing is, a lot of times, untreated or undertreated depression. A lot of time, like for me at least, like we're just so busy in school and, and working, like you just can't find time to, you know, go to therapist or something. So it's tough. I can see why it would be undertreated or untreated. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm saying. It's very surprising that the suicide rate among physicians is actually higher than any than among those in the military, which is considered a very stressful occupation. So, yeah, being a doctor is stressful, yeah. Um, so this was actually a 2018 article presented during the American Psychiatric Association. I wonder if it gotten better or worse within the past four years. Uh, so I, I also made another, like the video I made on my YouTube channel, it's, it's a recent resident, first year resident that committed suicide um, at one of a program that I know of uh, that I actually applied to and this is not a fault in the program at all or anything um, yes like residency uh, we need like a reform reformation and, and residency programs like the way it's run the curriculum and everything it's, um, but that's not what I want to get into if you guys want to know about my thought on the topic you can watch the YouTube video 
Um, so what's interesting here is that the results show that auto female doctors attempt suicide far less often than women in the general population. The completion rate exceeds that of the general population by 2.5 to 4 times. Dang. And it equals the completion rate of male doctors. So in general, in the general population, female will attempt suicide more often than males. But males have a higher rate of suicide completion when they carry it through in the general population. But apparently in the... Uh, with doctors, the female doctors will attempt less uh, suicide uh, episodes than women in the general population, but they have the exact same rate of completion as male doctors. So I guess you can say that I think doctors just know how to the body too well, and they just they just pull it. They know how to kill themselves well. Um, and that's sad, man. Two two point five to four times the completion rate for female doctors than the average population. It's crazy. So some of the most common diagnoses are mood disorders. So they don't really know why the rates are so high for doctors. I mean, I can do freaking stressful jobs like residency and stuff. Come on. I wonder how I I wanna I wonder how many. Like what the what the uh the percentages of the suicide you know like the total suicide rate for doctors every year how many how much of that is from residents and if it's skewed you know like let's say we have a hundred thousand physician in the U.S. I'm sure we have more than that and only like maybe like uh ten thousand residents so like was that ten percent of the hundred thousand and yet maybe like fifty percent of residents so let's say like. 5,000 of the residents are dying. So that's 50% of the residents are committing suicide. You know, I want to, so that's my, it was biased toward the residents a little more. That'd be interesting. If you guys know, you know, message me or something, email me. I want to know that. So once they show that depression affects an estimated 12% of male doctors and up to 19.5% of female doctors. A rate similar to the general population. Okay. And depression is more common in medical students and residents. There you go. About 15 to 30% of symptoms of depression. Yeah. When I think about it, you know, my med school careers, even sometimes now, man, like you're just walking around and like your mood is just literally, you, you, your sick E caps will be pretty, you know, significantly high, probably moderate to severe. Uh, probably like 15, you know. I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, I was visiting my friend in the, in the doctor's office, because uh, uh, they work as medical assistants, so I came one day and they were like, hey, you know, what? like let me take that sick ECAP, fun. And I was just like thinking about anything of it, or and it turns and I can't and it turns out I have like like a low to moderate depression based on the score. I'm like, oh shoot, I didn't realize. Cause like, and it just sometimes that's you just that's just your baseline, and you just you you just in it for so long that you think that's just normal you think that's oh man i'm tired all the time but that's probably just because i'm studying so much and not sleeping well but that's it could be your depression or what i what i sleep so much is it my uh, lack of sleep am i just fatigued or is it just my depression like why do i not want to do anything why do i have pleasure you know why, do, why why am i not enjoying my hobbies anymore 
it's, it's probably because I'm too busy studying, or it could be your freaking depression. Why am I not eating as much? Why am I eating too much? Also depression, or I don't know. Maybe you're working too hard, or it could be depression. So yeah, man, the symptoms overlap, and it's hard. Like when you're a med student, <sighs> I can definitely see undertreated or untreated depressions in a lot of people in here, and that's sad. So they found that the mood disorders among healthcare professionals are not restricted to just North America, but Finland, Norway, Australia, Singapore, China, and elsewhere shown an increase in anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts among med students and healthcare professionals. Not surprised at all. So they say a stigma, the stigma is a major obstacle to seeking medical treatment. Um, 26 study found 50% of female doctors to complete Facebook questionnaire reported meeting criteria for mental disorder but were reluctant to seek professional help because of the fear of the stigma. Yikes. 50%. Neo did they have mental disorder but they just didn't want to seek professional help. I think for me my obstacle would not necessarily be like oh yeah like I don't want people to know I mean you don't have to tell your friends or something you know like just do your therapy at a um I don't understand this kind of part. Like I'm not I don't think I'd be afraid of being judged by like my therapist or something. You know, they they just gonna you know, do their job. So I don't I'm not scared of that. But I think the biggest obstacle for me is just making time in my schedule to go to, you know, therapy sessions and I think that's that's the biggest problem for me, you know. Because that time you can use to study, and a lot of time you're just busy, you know, on rotations, studying, working, especially in residency. Now I don't even know how. I don't even know how I can even find time to, like, do like let's say if I needed therapy, if I can do even do like weekly or even like bi-weekly appointment sessions. That I don't think I can. There's no way. Like with my work schedule, I don't think I can do it. I barely have time to do anything. Like I'm barely going to the gym. So that's my biggest obstacle. Uh, studies show that poisoning and hanging are the most common means of doctor suicide. Wow. Um, so, it's, so here it suggests that having knowledge and access to potentially lethal substances. That's probably why that counts a higher rate of suicide completion. Yeah, like we just know to kill ourselves. And we have access to these lethal drugs. Which makes sense. I can see that. So out of all the medical specialties, psychiatry is actually near the top in terms of suicide rates. I did not know that. That's interesting. Why? Psychiatry? Like, the psychiatry is the ones who treating all these mood disorder, encountering all these patients. I wonder if it's like the ex just the mere exposures to, you know, these situations. That's scary, yeah. Like, the the person, the help that's coming to help you is affected by all these things. That's scary. So, several sessions this GAPA meeting address doctor wellness and burnout, which may help reduce suicide rates. I hope so. 
Um, stress starts in medical school and continues in residency with a high demands, competitiveness, long hours, and lack of sleep. And this may contribute to substance abuse. Another risk factor for suicide. Yikes. Yeah. I think just, dude, come on, just give us more residency programs. Like, funnel money into it, man. Give us more money for residency programs. I think that's the biggest stress for, like, a lot of my students going unmatched or something. Funnel more money into the residency programs. Yeah, and then it goes on to talk about, you know, discussing suicide as an illness, how to bring it out, the darkness, and the stigma shattering this problem. So, wild stuff. Wild, wild stuff. Scary. Um, I know I have friends, you know, uh, who who's like super stressed about the whole process of applying for residency and just taking the test, taking exams, like step one, step two. Especially coming from a Caribbean med school, I understand how stressful it is. Like trying to get off the island the first two years, you make sure you do really well, so you can even sit to take your step one. Now that step fail for step one, you know, like you want like competitive specialty or something, you know, like you want a good chance of matching. You need to do really well in step two now, where the scores matter. Man, I mean, I thank God that. I, you know, bypass got through to this point here for me is definitely a blessing that I'm here right now. But, um, you know, residency is also very tough. And I'm doing well so far. Uh, thanks for asking, guys. But, you know, I still got a long way to go. It's only been three months. <laughs> All right, next one, what we got here? So I, I, I saw this article on Medscape and it's, so obviously it's an opinion article. I want to bring it up to you guys. Just like shed some light on it. I don't really agree with this article, but you know, this is all my opinion and my thoughts. Um, let me know what you guys think. You know, comment below your thoughts. Try to change my mind if you can. Not not that that's a challenge. I do want to hear what you guys you know what your thoughts on these are. Um, I believe having an open discussions that's gonna help. Uh, let's move to a better direction. So here the article said, let's stop putting gender on birth certificates. So this is from individual opinion, obviously. So New York University Grossman School of Medicine, Division of Medical Ethics. Um, so talk about, essentially it talks about should we put gender, like male or female, on birth certificates? And I see this because as a pediatric, um, I'm on pediatric now, so a newborn baby. So when there's like a delivery or something, I'm called to the room and L uh, OB would deliver the baby and then hand the baby to me and we will examine the baby, make sure the baby is good. And the first thing he asks is like, uh, you know, you want to check for the sex organ, like male or female. We're going to put that into the baby's chart, right? Make sure when, when, when we present the baby to our attendings, we always, like, always start with baby boy baby girl, we need to know what we're dealing with, okay? So, here, this guy, uh, this doctor suggests that, actually, so it's, it's the AMA, American Medical Association, wow. I haven't read this article, I probably should. I mean, uh, the article by the AMA, they, ha they have a link here. 
the source. So they decided that the sex should be removed as a legal des destination, uh, destination on the public part of the birth certificates. Meaning you get a public document as an individual to take home and then certain information sent to the government that track things like gender, sex, race, and ethnicity. This information is private. It's not something that people can publicly access. It's only there for record keeping that would still exist. Okay, so it's not... So essentially, I guess it's just saying that the public document of your birth the public part of your birth certificate should not have sex on there, but your gender, sex, rate, and ethnicity, so the private part that you need to send to the government would still need to be in there. So this thing, um, so this article title is kind of misleading, right? Because I thought they would say like, oh, don't put anything on there at all. Um. Yeah, it makes. I I think this is stupid to not have it on there at all. Because you need to track. How do you keep track of people? This is one piece of identifying information. <laughs> so essentially, he's saying that the birth certificate that you take home doesn't need to have sex on it, according to the AMA. This decision was not taken lightly. It was a large amount of debate. Many doctors said, "Quote: Over the years, I've been trained to put the sex on the birth certificate." We do that by basically examining genitalia as something that historic, historically has been part of a birth certificate. I don't see any reason to change it. So what is? So he should be giving us a reason why they want to change it, right? So the reason people argue that we're now becoming more sophisticated about sexual identity and gender orientation. And we realize that sex is not simply a binary concept. It's not just male and female. There may be people who are transgender, bisexual, or who have a characteristic of male and female. If you put one sex on there, it can be used and has been used to discriminate against people, stigmatize people, and even sometimes to punish people. See, so this is the problem I have with this whole issue. Is there's no transparency, and the language that, that, that we're using is not agreed upon. So, personally, like for me, like as far as I know, as my education, Gender and sex, okay? You can't equate them together. Gender, is, gender expression, I understand that people will identify a certain way and they want to express the gender identity a certain way. But your sex, it's not the same as the gender. I think your sex is biological, right? XY chromosomes and uh, your phenotypic expression, which is your genitalia. Genitalia? Gen genitalia, genitals, genitalia. Genit genitalia. <laughs> so I guess my uh my podcast voice is I can't speak today. Um, yeah, but so here you start out with saying this per uh this person started with sexual identity and gender orientation, and sex is not simple binary concept, and I don't agree with that. Either. I think sex is pretty binary. You either you know X Y or X X. Sometimes, you know, you have outliers where somebody you go like XXY um, or just one X, like Turner Syndrome. But those are the exceptions, not the norm, right? 90%, 95% of people is going to be the norm, which is XY is the XX, uh, penis or vagina. Um, the other group of, the, the other uh, subgroup of people is going to be the exceptions. 
so then so another thing that's going on, so this person here is, is they talking about um that you put one section that can be used and has been used to discriminate discriminate against people stigmatize people even sometimes to punish people so here like they're not they, they're equating sex biological sex with gender expression and gender identity it's not the same thing They go on to say support removal this classification I think is at all and out of date. We're more sophisticated about sexuality being more a continuum than it is hard and fast binary distinction. Yeah, so I know a lot of you guys is not gonna agree with me that you know sex is binary. Um and that it's on a spectrum. But I will concede that about gender, gender expression and gender identity, you can kind of express your gender on a spectrum like some people might be a little bit more masculine like a boy a guy a male might be a little more feminine than the typical masculine guy or some female might be a little more masculine than the typical girl and that's expression and identity but your biological sex is still binary okay so race yeah so it's usually on saying the ama is right so yeah so this article i'm like i don't know man ama american medical association i don't think i guess i'm if you want to take it out of the public record you don't need to put it in the public record if that's what you want to do i guess i'm okay with that but on birth certificates like i think like for record keeping and everyone else to just know who you are it need to make sure to mark your biological sex like male or female like when you go to uh, a doctor's office how we, this is literally how we there's so many there's literally like lists of differential diagnosis that we can cross off um, just based on your sex alone or what kind of testing or what kind of uh, medications that you should get as a male or female um, you know there's like medication side effects that can affect females more than males or vice versa or dosage need to be adjusted based on your sex so i don't know this is an iffy one for me all right last one so this one um i saw this a while back and i have it saved in my pocket i just never got around to like doing uh getting into it but Essentially, it said Sunnybrook medical resident faces lawsuit after sexual miscon misconduct allegation against prominent cardiologists. So I think she, well, let's read it together. But I think she sued the cardiologist, this hospital or something, and then the cardiologist is suing her now. Um, let's get into it. <laughs> so female medical resident at Sunnybrook Hospital reported an accusation of sexual misconduct against a male supervisor. So she filed a lawsuit against the hospital and her university saying they failed to investigate a complaint. And now she's being sued by the supervisor for defamation. Yikes. So it's been nearly a year. I don't know when this was. This was in... I don't know when this article came out. Um, so it's been a year. So, okay. So July 30th, 2021. She reported them. So University of Toronto. She was an internal medicine resident and he was an associate professor. 
Okay, so she claimed that the cardiologist had coerced her into a sexual encounter by leveraging the position of power he had over her career. Uh, he denied this, obviously, and said, yeah, there's nothing, no such thing happened. So before we go on, I just want to say, yes, there is a power dynamic, um, especially residents, attendings, even as med students, okay? Med students to resident, med student to attending, resident to med student, resident to attendings. There's a power dynamic that you just can't deny it. Um, doesn't matter what you say, even if you're, let's say you're an attending, or even if I'm a resident, even if you like pure intention, like let's say I know that like I means no ill wills towards my med students or the way I, uh, or uh, I don't want to exploit them or like things I ask them to do. And I, even though I'm trying to like give that vibe, even though I'm trying to like t have them be comfortable around me, you know, I'm like, keep telling them, like, hey, just call me t like by my first name and don't call me doctor or something. As a med student, because I went through this myself, like as a med student, so I'm using med student first and we, we can do resident. She's a resident in this case, but it's the same thing. As a med student, and I'm using med students because I was most recently a med student, so I know exactly how it is. I'm not going to say resident. But as a med student, even though, you know, you know, that let's say like, oh yeah, I don't need to do stuff, but essentially you, I don't want to say like, you want to please your like super, superior, like it's just human nature, right? Like you want to do well in the rotation. You want to make a good impressions. You want to get good evaluations. Um, you know, laugh at the jokes, you know, stupid, like even though you're really tired, like if they ask you to do things, you know, do them no matter what. Um, check them on the patient, write this notes, you know, even when they're like, you know, like a lot of students are even scared of like when the attending or resident like, hey, you can go home now if you want. Like this phrase I remember right here, hey, you can go home if you want. You can go home early if you want. Just having that if you want thing in there, it's going to make med student because of this power dynamic and be like, oh my gosh, if I leave now, it's going to seem like I want to leave and it's going to seem like I'm lazy. So I shouldn't leave. I should stay for longer, but I really actually do want to leave. So because of that power dynamic, that's there. There's nothing you can do. It's always going to be there. Even if you're a resident and you try to be nice to your med student and let them go home early, that power, that power dynamic's there. And so like, let's, I think the best way to do it would be say, you can go home now and just leave it there. Don't say if you want. Once you put that responsibility in the med student because of, of that power dynamic, they're going to be scared to go home. And same thing with like attending, like if attending asks me to do things, I'm going to do it no matter what. Like even if, let's say, this medication is something that the patient should, I think that oh, maybe we shouldn't start that medication, but because it's the attending, right? And even if I want to do what's best for my patient, like maybe I can, if I'm really sure of myself, I can question that attending, be like, uh, why are we starting this medication? Or like, I don't think we should start this medication, but I would be, because of that power dynamic, I would be scared to even voice that opinion, you know, um, compared to if there was no power dynamic at play. Or if like an attending asked me to do something, like, oh, hey, like, you grab me this coffee too, you know, you'd be more inclined to, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, it's not me or something. Anyway, so now that's, that's there, let's move on. Um, so there, this is true, there's always a power dynamic there. So, since the alleged incident, she's been on stress leave, medical care on hold. Um, 
Dr. Glover, so the cardiologist actually plays on leave also, pending the result of the investigation. Okay, so she sued the the, the hospital and the school. Uh, send a statement. Okay, so it's still investigated. Okay, she graduated school in twenty twenty, and did post grad. So she was probably so she was a first year intern. So she was an intern, man. Yeah, that's rough. So she met the cardiologist doing forward rotation in the cardiology unit where he was the direct clinical supervisor for one of those weeks. So, he only, so she only worked with him pretty much one week. And this happened because all the time like cardiologists, like when you're on like rotations, I remember this because they would like rotate through all one week to be like on call for like admitting patients, doing consults and stuff. And then another week they would switch out and they'd be an outpatient, seeing a lot of patients in the clinic. And like another week they'd be in the uh, interventional, they'd be in the cat lab doing cats, uh, catting people. So yeah, it makes sense. It's only like one week when they met. And they were going to begin a four-week research project together. Okay. And he, the cardiologist was a rising star in the, or viewed as a rising star in the clinical research world. And yeah, she said, so he became her mentor. So another important thing you guys need to know about residents and med students and doctors and stuff like if you want she's internal medicine so i'm guessing she if you want to go into a fellowship after um your internal medicine residency or even like anything like if you want to do cardiology something then you want to do research during your residency years during your three years of internal medicine residency you need to start putting out research because you know beef of your resume make your application look better and apply when you apply to fellowship programs and I know, especially for cardiology, like I'm guessing that might be the one you want to go into. Um, very competitive, and you do need a lot of research. Uh, so apparently, okay, so he had a party. Ooh, so he had a party at his home with some members of the cardiology unit. So in the claim that she made, that the resident made, uh, as people begin to leave the party, the cardiologist asked her to stay and discuss her career aspirations. She alleges that he pressed her to drink, take a sip, and we can keep talking. And then he began to kiss her. Uh-oh. Spaghetti-o. See, this is a problem. This is why I don't drink. <laughs> uh, you gotta realize that, you know, drinking, when you get drunk, um, you're intoxicated, your inhibitions will be lower. Um, doesn't matter, you know, I think if I'm with my group, even with group of friends and stuff, I think as of this point in my life, as a as a career professional, you should always be careful about being intoxicated, um, especially in public situations. Um. Anyway, so yeah. Uh. So they began kissing, and then from there the clan continues. They had in the course on a trampoline in the backyard. I, that's uh, where picture I have in my head in the course on the trampoline in the backyard that's a weird detail <laughs> I don't even know why it's included in there but anyway so later a few days later she, uh, the resident spoke to the police about what happened and in an interview with officers she acknowledged that she so she verbally consented even though she was extremely intoxicated and that as a medical resident she was conditioned to do what her supervisor told her to do Quote, the events are very blurry. I can't remember. I can't really remember what I said. 
I just remember the feeling of being uncomfortable but needing to tough it out. Huh. She claimed that she did she described the encounter as a sexual assault. She alleged that the cardiologist warned her not to tell anyone or they would both face repercussions. I wish I can see, you know, you probably shouldn't be having, you know, contacts relationship with I felt like maybe not co-workers but like attending residents that's frowned upon um, I don't know what the policy is for the hospital either but okay so it's like here CPSO policy bars supervisor from having sexual relationship with medical students and postgrad trainees while they are mentoring teaching supervising evaluating them so yeah the policy in the hospital right there is just saying like don't have sexual relationships and this is not like the first episode of Grey's Anatomy where you know Meredith Grey, the first day intern, slept with her attending unknowingly. This is, they both know and they went ahead with it. So both are at fault here. Um, but I don't know, man. So far, the story she told me, like, I mean, she consented, you know, even though she was extremely intoxicated, sure. But she, consented i don't know what else to do you know i think as a guy is this who how 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 are you gonna know how intoxicated that person really is when you're in the situation um because people act intoxicated like differently when they're intoxicated like there's people who's like just totally passed out or, like kind of you know oh i don't know what's going on but there's some people who's just straight up having like a good time like dancing like crazy like talking to people but when you ask them the next day they don't, they don't remember doing those things at all i consider that pretty much blacking out but just because you didn't go totally unconscious you don't remember what you did then you had too much to drink so i don't know i don't know what she is like as a person but like i think it's hard to fault a guy here because she verbally consented i think as a guy myself i'm like and i know it's really tough nowadays i know on like colleges campus and stuff you need like a written consent or something and if i was in college right now or like you know as a guy you gotta be really careful nowadays yeah so her story is just kind of fishy to me um i'm not blaming her about anything i'm just the story is just kind of weird and the cardiolo cardiologist also at fault here he, he knows that he has uh there's a power dynamics and he knows that he shouldn't be doing it but he went with it anyway doesn't doesn't matter if she consented or not. Even if she was sober, he shouldn't have done it. It's July twenty four, she went for a sexual assault kit examination. So yeah, so she went to college hospital, got a sexual assault kit examination, swaps were taken, have not yet been tested for DNA. Because she did not pursue criminal charges at the time. Okay? So in the statement defense, okay, so this cardiologist actually denied even having sexual contact with her at all. And he denied encouraging her to drink, denied he held any power control over her career. That's not true. Um, I mean, he can deny it, but technically everyone knows that he does have power or control over her career. He said that she, the resident stayed after other guests left at home and they talked platonically like friends 
He said he went inside around 1 a.m. to check on his children. Ooh, this guy had kids. Fell asleep and found out the Duong, so the resident asleep on the trampoline around 3 a.m. I wonder if he had his wife or not. I if he's like a single dad. So then he launched a counterclaim saying that the resident defamed him. And quote, she invented these allegations for the improper purpose of coercing settlement monies. Huh. So Sonny broke the hospital saying that so the statement of defense that Dr. Glover so the cardiologist is not an employee of the hospital. UTC the same, saying that Dr. Glover's the cardiologist position as a clinical academic pointy did not create an employment relationship. I don't really know what that has to do with anything because technically technically like none of the our attending working at a hospital Wait, how is he not an employee? Yeah, technically all the attendants that work in the hospital is not really an employee of the hospital. So this is in Toronto, Canada, but I know in California, I think there's a law that said hospitals cannot hire physicians directly. So a lot of them now, the other attendants like that works in the hospitals are contracted through their physician group. So they technically are not employee of the hospital. They just have they work for the physician group that is contracted with the hospital. So this is technically true. But I don't know what that has to do with anything. Because he still was an academic at Pony and he was still like overseeing the resident and stuff. I said right here, yeah. Most doctors essentially operate independent contractors. They have privileges at hospitals. Okay, so... It said here is even more complex because the resident reported to Sunnybrook the hospital for work but as a resident, she was part of the University of Toronto's internal medicine program. Okay, so... Okay, so this hospital was in... So technically this hospital doesn't have... I'm guessing it doesn't have the internal medicine program. And she just works there for that cardiology rotation. Because the University of Toronto's internal medicine program have probably have its own hospital that it works with. Right? I don't really know the 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 logistic of that. That's what I'm guessing. She's probably doing like an elective cardiology at Sunnybrook. So you go on to talk about oh they got an investigation, investigator outside. Um so, okay, so this cardiologist is from Ireland, so he wants to move back. Who is from Ireland wants to move back his court filing state. So he resigned from the hospital in 2022, March 2022. That's recent, dude. Without his teaching position, his license to practice in Ontario expire. The CPSO cannot prohibit physicians from practicing in other jurisdictions. Okay, so this doctor probably working here at a hospital on like a visa, like a work visa or something, right? Because he's from Ireland. Um, yeah, so he's not in like a US citizen. Yeah, yeah, so that's where we're at. So essentially this is a story. Wild story, resident Sioux um, hospital. 
not the doctor herself, just to the hospital and the university, the program she's at, for not doing anything about the alleged um, sexual assault that she encountered with this cardiologist who she was probably unelected with at this hospital. And then the and then the cardiologist sued her for defaming him. And he retired. I mean, he, he resigned from the hospital. So what you learn from this is uh, don't have sex with your coworkers. Yep. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I'm going to try to keep <laughs> going with weekly episodes. If I don't, please forgive me. But thanks for all your support. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Leave a review if you guys like this stuff. Like, Let me know what kind of stuff you want me to cover. And hopefully I'm with you back soon. Thanks for listening. This is your boy, Ted.